Okay, 2 Corinthians 13, here we are finishing up Paul's argument uh, of his defense of his ministry. What we've been looking at since chapter 10, Paul defending his ministry to quote-unquote super apostles that were trying to take over leadership in the church, trying to discredit Paul, trying to basically um, belittle him to the congregations that the congregation wouldn't accept his authority. Okay, he begins in verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I'm absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. So as we've seen, there's lots of sin issues going on at Corinth. Lots of people walking out of accord with their Christian profession. And Paul is going to go and visit them again, and he'll probably need to exercise some church discipline when he's there. And he begins saying, for these people that are um, offending the Lord, living in a sinful way, the testimony against them must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is in keeping what we see in Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19.15, that accusations brought against people needed two or three witnesses. Uh, The reason for this is that it helps mitigate against um, malicious witnesses. Just, I have a vendetta against you, so I go accuse you of some horrible crime. That wouldn't stand in court. Yes, you could have two or three people do that, but it's less likely than just one person having a vendetta. Also, um, so it's a protection against the malicious, but there's also a sense in which it's a mercy built into the law. Someone may have actually committed a crime, But if there was only one witness, they actually couldn't be prosecuted. And uh, we don't don't like that idea of someone getting away with something just because there was only one witness. But you might, we can think of that in a way that God actually built mercy into the law directly. Uh, That's a grace he gave. Um, And I think just even as we think of our day of courts and evidences and all these things, it's an interesting thought, this idea of two or three witnesses If you had two witnesses, uh, you technically could accuse yourself if you committed a crime and then just have one person. So say if like uh, two people committed adultery, they could um, accuse themselves as it were, and there wouldn't need to be any witnesses to that act. Uh, But I wonder, and I'm not sure about this, whether we can bring in um, certain types of evidences that we have today as witness, right? Like would a video camera count as a witness? Or would uh, DNA evidence count as a witness if we were trying to follow this principle of two or three witnesses today? I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting to think about. Um, And uh, he says the same thing later on about elders in the church, to not admit an accusation against an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So again, a protection for church leaders from maybe malicious or hurt congregants that might try to discredit them. We shouldn't just... um, Admit an accusation against an elder on the testimony of one witness. So he says, I warned you when I was present, and I'm warning you again, that if I come again, I will not be lenient. He says, you know, they've been accusing Paul of being a softy. And he says, no, if I come, I will exercise discipline. And he actually says in verse 3, it's interesting, that this discipline would be a proof of Christ speaking in him. So they've been challenging his apostolic authority, which is saying, we are not sure you're a true representative of Christ. And he says, Christ's truth will be shown in me as I discipline. Because the act of discipline in a church, of using the keys of the kingdom, as it were, is an act of authority that Christ commissioned. Church discipline is on behalf of Christ. 
And he actually moves to the example of Christ, saying that uh, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For though he was crucified in weakness, he lives by the power of God. So Paul's pointing out here that in the Christian faith, there is no um, strict bifurcation between weakness and authority. Um, If you think in society often, the weak people are the ones that are cast down and squashed. And if you want to be a person of authority, you have to come down heavy-handed and be strong and never show any weakness. But Paul's saying, Christ, he showed weakness. He was crucified in weakness, but he now is raised up. He has the great ultimate power of the universe. And so in Christianity, weakness and power are not antithetical But weakness is actually the path to power, right? Jesus said, if anyone would be great, he should be a servant of all. Just as Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Or um, as it's often said colloquial in the church, that uh, the cross comes before the crown. Or the, the cross, the way of suffering, the way of grief, is the way to spiritual power and authority. And so Paul says, we also are weak in him. He's been saying for chapters now all his afflictions and sufferings. He says, we're weak in Christ, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. Or this, this might be better said that we will show you that we are alive in Christ as we exercise Christ's authority in the church. Okay, this is Paul defending, um, defending his ministry here in the context of church discipline. Any, any comments or questions on that? Okay, take a look at verse 5. So, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Okay, the context here is these people have been testing Paul, right? They're saying, are you really an apostolic representative? Do you really have Christ speaking in you? And he's like, you're testing me to see if I'm in faith? Well, start off with testing your own selves, right? Remove the speck from your eye. Uh, before you try to take the log from your brothers, or log from your own, speck from your brothers. He says, test yourselves, um, you accusers of mine. Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize that Christ is in you? Or he's saying, you will probably recognize that Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. He kind of throws that out as an aside. Unless you fail the test. But his point in saying this is seen in verse 6, I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. So he's saying, if you look at yourself and you see evidence of Christ in you, if you people in Corinth can see evidence that you are in the faith, just apply that same criteria to me, and you will abundantly see that I am just as much in the faith as you. He's made these sorts of arguments actually before in the letter. He's saying, If you don't fail the test, neither do we, right? Like these people were not living more godly, more faithful lives than the Apostle Paul. And so he's saying, apply yourselves to the test and you'll see that we do not fail the test. And um, these verses are popular verses um, that I think a lot of us have grown up hearing. Just the idea of uh, you don't want to be a false convert, right? You don't want to have only historical faith. So... We need to be testing ourselves to see whether we are indeed in the faith and examining ourselves. And I think at points that um, verses like this have kind of been used as a bit of a club to uh, batter down um, sincere-hearted believers and just lead them to extra doubt instead of faith. 
Um, Though really, when we see these in context here, this is actually just part of Paul's rhetorical argument against people accusing him. However, there, there is a truth here that I think we can apply, and um, I kind of want to springboard off this a little bit just to talk a little bit about um, assurance of faith. Because we know that it is, you can grow up in the church, right? You can appear to acknowledge doctrines and have right beliefs, right? Like James says, even the Satan or the demons believe God's one and they shudder. And so we do recognize that there is the possibility of hypocrisy, right? Um, so how, how might we test ourselves? What are, say, the questions on the exam? If we were going to take an exam ourselves, what questions might we ask ourselves to see whether we are actually in the faith? Right, as um, John said in First John, he said, these people walked with us, but they weren't actually of us because they didn't continue with us. So what are the questions? Well, I really like, um, if you haven't read it, the chapter on assurance of faith in our Westminster Confession, chapter 18, is really helpful. And it gives three questions at the start. And these are my three favorite questions when we think about testing ourselves. Um, it says, such as, um, and this is kind of out of context, this is just the three headings, but he said, it says, such as truly believe in Christ, such as love him in sincerity, and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him. Those are the people that ought to have assurance of faith. Those who believe in Christ truly, who love Christ sincerely, and endeavor to walk before him in good conscience, right? So we might summarize those as true belief, sincere love, and endeavoring obedience. Those are the three questions as Christians we need to answer to test the genuineness of our faith. And I think a helpful way to actually test that is by looking at the opposite, right? So if we think, do I have true belief? What would be false belief? A belief that we don't hold truly. Um, that might be one way you might evidence that is if you're like actually lying to people that you believe something when you really don't, okay? That's an easy one. Uh, or it might be a belief that would be proved you don't really believe because you don't actually use it, right? Like some, a kid might boast that the ice is really thick, it can hold him up, but if he has no confidence to actually walk out on the ice, he probably doesn't really believe it'll hold him up, right? So the way you know your belief in Christ is true and not false is that you actually use Christ? Is that you actually um, hope in him for salvation? Right? False belief would be like, well, I know that really I'm going to be the one that works hard enough and I do depend on my own good works to get to heaven and I know if I do better than other people, I will go to the good place. Um, whereas if you're someone that's saying, no, I really know that Christ is my only hope and I do have no other plea before God than his blood. That's an evidence of true belief, right? We, true belief is not some, I've discerned the mystical depths of my heart and I have found the truth of this belief. It's more evident than that. Um, and of course, we, you can go down a rabbit hole with each of these, but true belief, um, sincere love. If, how do we know we have sincere love for Christ? Well, what would be insincere love for Christ? That's the love of a hypocrite. And we all know what this is in our life. If, some, if um, to say someone that you, tell someone you love them when you know you really don't. We know if our love for people 
is sincere or we know if it's in pretense, right? Like um, you might have to, in a sense, feign love for your boss at work and you know you don't love them, but you have to show some sort of smile when they come in the room, say niceties, right? We know the difference when we're loving someone sincerely versus insincerely. And then lastly, um, endeavoring obedience. And what's the opposite of endeavoring to do something? It's actively avoiding it. And so we look at ourselves and we say, do I at least want to and hope to try to follow in Christ's commands and obey the teachings of scripture? Um, Maybe we're not endeavoring as hard as we like to, but am I at least trying to walk the race of faith, even if I'm not running, versus actively avoiding, right? We know it's like, no, I'll maybe do appearances for other people, but I would love to disobey all of Christ's commands if I could get away with it. And I actually want to avoid obeying scripture as much as possible, right? You can see a stark contrast in the heart there. Um, and any questions on any of those three? Okay, one other thing on this I want to bring up is you, you may have heard of the assurance pyramid. And uh, this is more relatable for people that come from certain backgrounds. But uh, another way to think of assurance is the assurance pyramid. And so if you think of the bottom, the bottom section, the biggest, strongest section, is we gain assurance through the promises of God. The promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that the Lord saves sinners. Right? That the Lord brings salvation to all who call on him. That's the foundation of assurance. is the promises of God in scripture. Look to me all ye ends of the earth and be saved. Uh, the middle section, lesser but still important, is then the fruit of godly living. Um, that endeavoring obedience, the spiritual fruit, the fruit of the spirit, um, seeking to walk in Christ's ways. And then the tip is the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. So that, that sort of spiritual, illuminating assurance that the Holy Spirit, as Romans 8 says, testifies to us that we're children of God. And the problem that um, in a lot of more mystic reform circles is that pyramid gets flipped upside down. And the foundation of assurance becomes um, some spiritual experience, some mysterious witness where your heart's flooded with light and you have this assurance before God of the Spirit, some radical experience. And that's what you rest everything on. And if you don't have that, you can't have any assurance. And then they go up from there to the fruit of life. And then if you have some spiritual experience and you have a bunch of spiritual fruit, then you're allowed to try to claim these promises of God for yourself. Only after you see all this in your life can you then call on the Lord for salvation. And that's a total inversion of the way the Bible calls us to seek God. The foundation is the promises of God. It's faith in his word that he will save sinners who call on his name. Does that make sense? Have you guys seen seen that? Hey, I'm I'm getting some nods. Very, very good. Big nods even. Very nice. Okay, verse 7. We pray to God that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. Here, in essence, Paul's saying that even if you guys despise us and reject us, all we care is that you guys do what is right. You guys flee the sin you're getting stuck in and follow God. 
Um, even, and even if you cast us off in the process, all I want is your good, your righteousness. For we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We pray also that you may become fully mature. Again, this heart of Paul to say, I will take afflictions. I will be weak. I will suffer all these hardships I've suffered just that you might be strong in Christ, that you might be strong in faith. This is Paul's heart for the church. And he summarizes it in his prayer that you may become fully mature, right? Christian maturity. This is the goal we're aiming towards. And this comes out all the time, right? We can think of Ephesians 4, where we're called as a body to build itself up in love until we attain maturity, the knowledge of the Son of God, that speaking the truth in love, we may grow up, right? We may mature into Christ, right? This is what we're after together. This is why we speak the truth in love, that we may mature in our faith, right? To not be infantile in our thinking, to not be unskilled in the word of righteousness. Uh, a good verse here, which we're actually going to be looking at in the message this morning, is uh, Hebrews 5.14, which reminds us, it says, solid food, the solid teaching is for the mature. And the writer of Hebrews, whom I think is Paul, defines um, this maturity as the one who has his senses trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. Right? So Christian maturity is not... Um, a one-step pill. It's not a, just a baptism in the spirit and now I'm a holy Christian. It's a practice of the use of our senses, our discernment of righteousness and wickedness, and being trained in that to actually know good from evil, to know what is good according to God's word, what is evil according to God's word, and how to apply that to our lives. Christian maturity is growth and wisdom. And we often lose sort of um, the, a wisdom culture. That's what we should be pursuing, a wisdom culture in our churches. And one way to think of wisdom is not just um, knowing the law to apply or do. That's easy. It's making the best decisions when we don't have clear biblical principles in front of us. When we don't have an obvious command such as don't steal. It's when things are more gray that we really need wisdom to take just the bits of the principles that apply, and just our overall life of faith to make wise and good decisions. Christian maturity takes work. Uh, or I like the summary in Romans 16, 19, that we're, we want to be excellent at what is good, innocent of evil, right? And isn't that kind of what happens as kids grow up? Hopefully they throw off uh, those temper tantrums, right? We want them to be innocent of that. The older they get, there should be less of that. And more understanding in excellence at what is good. They should develop skills in reading and writing and sports and activities, right? So as Christians, we want to be growing in our faith, continually sinning less, continually serving God better, right? And we should have this growth mindset all our life. We never graduate from the school of Christian maturity, right? Any comments, questions? Okay, uh, verse 10. This is why I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you. 
in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So this is kind of interesting. Paul wants to write to the church to help them get their house in order so that when he shows up, he can just enjoy them in God and doesn't have to exercise discipline. Um, This might be like, uh, well, maybe kind of parents coming home from a night out where there's been the babysitter like, hey, like I'm phoning you ahead of time so you can try to have the kids in bed by the time we get home so that when I come, it won't be mayhem, but it'll be peace. Paul's saying, you know, guys, get the house in order. I don't want to have to come with a heavy hand, okay? Get these issues dealt with so that I can come and I can really um, press on towards Christian maturity. In keeping with the authority, the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So even though apostolic authority could be used to discipline, the, the primary purpose of authority is to build up the church, to edify God's people, to see them grow. And it's not for tearing the people down. It is for tearing down, as we saw in chapter 10, um, idols, high opinions raised up against the knowledge of Christ, all those isms, right, that we talked about. So yes, use your authority to tear down the idols of the age, but build up the people of God. That is the purpose of really all authority in the church, right? We don't want to see leaders in the church using their authority to tear people down. No, we want to tear down sin, but elevate righteousness. We want to be people of encouragement and comfort. Verse 11, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Kind of reminds you of um, what, we, what we see in Philippians 4 that Pastor Mike's going through. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Uh, Paul likes this as a finally command. Hey, the last thing, rejoice. We want to be people of joy. And here's some commands, rapid fire. Become mature, right? Grow up in wisdom, maturity, understanding in the faith. Be, and this is actually, this becoming mature, a lot of commentators point out that this is very much a collective maturity, that you as a church body need to become mature. So that, that involves a certain level of, of unity, of one anothering, that the church actually becomes mature. Be encouraged. Uh, this could also be be comforted or be confirmed in your faith. Be of the same mind. Again, that's another one we see in Philippians. Paul says to be of the same mind. That is, we want to be unified in the way we think about things, right? That's why here at Grace Fellowship, we like to um, frequently reinforce our vision, our mission, and our core values, right? Because these are things we really want our church to be unified around, that all these core values we have are items for unity, things we want to rally around and all be on the same page about so that we're all pursuing them together. This is also why we have our confession, so that we can be theologically unified, and we don't need to wrangle and split hairs over the, over, um, the, the proper subjects of baptism or, or the right doctrine of salvation. Those are already settled down. Now let's just unify on them and go and work towards mission. Be of the same mind, be at peace, right? This is a congregation known for strife. And Paul wants them to be at peace among themselves in their relationships, to have unity, no divisions. And really in the church, we know that we live in a very divided culture with very little peace. There's much dissension and rivalry. And we ought to be able to set an example in the church that's different than what is seen in the world. 
We ought to be people that are setting an example of peace between even um, brothers and sisters, whether in this church or in other churches, that disagree even about contentious things like politics. How can we be people that are peacemakers, right? In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. So how can we, in just the way we talk, the way we have gracious speech, the way we listen, understand, love one another over anything that might d- divide us, right? Whether this, like, this little mask here, um, how do we pursue peace and that which makes for upbuilding, right? We, um, I think, have a lot of work to do in the church to show the world that there is a different way to disagree. There's a different way to walk forward in unity and love, even in the midst of um, circumstances that we're trying to apply biblical wisdom to might come to different conclusions. Um, to be peacemakers like this, I just think would such, set such a wonderful example to the world. But when they look at the church and they see the same divisions they have, um, what sort of witness for Christ is that, right? Peace, be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. What a beautiful promise. God so loves it when we're pursuing unity together, when we're pursuing peace together, when we're, when we're pursuing mutual encouragement and maturity, that God, the loving God, the peaceful God, wants to be with us. God delights to bring his presence to dwell with people that are seeking these qualities in the church. God loves to dwell with lovers and peacemakers. And he promises his presence to be with us. One commentator said his, he promises his heart to be with us, his help to be with us, and his presence to be with us. Right? The heart of God with us, the help of God with us, the peace of God with us. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings. So here we see, um, if we look in principle, Paul's saying, greet one another with an affectionate, a culturally appropriate affectionate greeting. Right? This isn't a standing norm for all time, but it is um, an example of the sort of familiarity, right? Family, that's, what, that's what's in that word. A familyishness that we should have in the church, that we should be able to greet one another as the closest of kin, as being truly brothers and sisters. So it might be a holy hug, or uh, for all you guys uh, here in West Michigan, a holy handshake, or whatever, but... Um, There ought to be a closeness in the body. These are not formal business relationships in the church. These are family relationships, and so there should be familial affection, right? So let's let's work towards that. Um, All the saints send you greetings. These are the saints in Macedonia that are with Paul at this time, probably Philippi. And lastly, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. One of the best Trinitarian verses in the Bible, um, the explicit distinction here of the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and just helpful to note, when you see the word God alone in the New Testament, it is almost always referring to the Father. Um, There's only a few references actually where it's not referring particularly to the Father. And um, that actually can be pretty clearly seen once you look at it. So the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, This verse was the basis for John Owen's really, really good book, um, Communion with God. 
where he argues that we as Christians need to be cultivating a distinct communion, that is, a distinct relationship with each of the three persons of the Trinity. Um, Not that these qualities are not found in each of the persons, but that we particularly attribute um, electing love, adopting love, um, radical love to the Father. And when we think about God's love, we want to be thinking about the Father, the Father that set in motion the plan of redemption to send Christ, the Father that welcomes us in reconciled relationship and actually adopts us into his very family. We want to think about the Father in love. We want to think about Jesus and grace. And I was thinking about this, that um, often the New Testament talks about grace, not graciousness. When we're talking about the grace of the Lord Jesus, we're actually not talking about um, his compassionate heart. Uh, The word grace here is not a disposition, but um, an action. And the grace of Christ refers to every expression of his goodness on his people's behalf. So the grace of Christ is the incarnation of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All of those are his grace being exercised and manifested towards us. So when we think of grace, we're thinking of redemption. We're thinking of all of what Christ has done, his person and his work. And it all speaks grace. The whole work of gospel redemption is grace. And we want to be reflecting on that frequently and commune with Christ through meditation on his grace. And lastly, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. As the word fellowship here is communion um, or sharing. There's a sharing together, an experience of God through the connection we have with the Holy Spirit. Right, The Holy Spirit is the one whose presence is particularly promised to be with God's people. Christ rises so that he can send the Holy Spirit to fill and indwell his people. And the Holy Spirit is the power by which we live the Christian life. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot here that I don't even know. Like, what do you mean, really, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? You know, I think there's more there I want to press into. I think there's more there each of us should want to press into. So let's, uh, even as we worship today, let's be reflecting on the Father's love, the Son's grace, the Spirit's fellowship, um, and enjoy God in our worship, right? We're not just honoring God in our worship, but we also want to be enjoying Him. Uh, any, any final comments, questions? We actually have a decent amount of time for once. So anything from this chapter stand out or thoughts to add? Alrighty, we'll, uh, we'll finish a bit early. Um, why don't we have, um, actually, a bit of a longer prayer time? Um, are there three people in here that would like to volunteer, volunteer to pray, just kind of based on some of these things we've read? I'll wait until we got three. Just raise your hand. Okay, Andrew? Julie, and one more. Do I have to pick someone? Okay, Matt, we'll go with you.
Okay, um, Andrew, you want to start? Then Julie, Matt, and um, I'll, I'll close.
um, to worship you, Lord. Would this be um, the refreshing that we mm -hmm. need, that you would give us strength through that, that we would remember how good and gracious you are, how great you are and mighty. And um, would we go into this week feeling refreshed, um, feeling the bond of fellowship that we have, even with our brothers and sisters? Would we um, pray for um, each other this week? And um, Lord, I just pray that you would um, go with us. Thank you. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come to your house today to worship, honor, and glorify mm -hmm. you, Lord. Uh, thank you. Uh, GC's leadership, Lord, uh, as he uh, takes us through your word, uh, please help us, Lord, to um, demonstrate the love of Christ, uh, not just through our words, but also through our actions and our, our, our deeds, Lord. Um, thank you for the opportunity again to worship you today, Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, please uh, continue to be with uh, our country during these uh, tumultuous times, Lord, and uh, please uh, give us peace through it all. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to be your children. We thank you that with incredible grace, Christ showed us the Father and that he brought redemption to a lost and dying people. We thank you that he rose and sent the Spirit to apply salvation to each of us. And we thank you that we're now temples of the Holy Spirit. We're children of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. Such amazing spiritual privileges. And we ask for help as we seek to press on towards maturity. Lord, that you would help us to be people of wisdom, that you would help us to be um, encouraging, loving peacemakers, those who rejoice always and give you praise all the day. Lord, bless us in our worship. Give us grace as we fellowship with one another and um, seek to enjoy this day of rest and worship that you've given to us. We pray all these things for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.